you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the third chapter of Genesis. When you're picking a a Christmas sermon, it is only important to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think Christmas is just a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God who came to us because we had completely ruined our lives. There is nothing we could do. We've offended ourselves in front of God in such a way that there is nothing for us except ruin and death. And God did something about that on Christmas. And so I chose one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Um, The 15th verse of chapter 3. Let me read it once more to you. This, by the way, is part of a curse. This, This verse is extracted from the curse on the serpent from God. This is God speaking to Satan. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This um, is the very first time that um, the Bible teaches us to expect a Redeemer. It was right after the fall. So you see, God is standing there in front of two Naked people who are ashamed, who are hiding, who are accusing each other, who are diving their responsibility and have nothing to say for themselves. And in the previous chapter, God had said, there's one requirement of you living in this place. I'm going to, I'm not going to allow you to eat this one tree. There was one exception, one thing of all of the delights of paradise, and something in the heart of a man will always leap towards distrust in God and also trusting the voice of of our enemy. There's just something built into us. These people who were innocent fell, and at that moment, for the first time, they knew they were guilty. They knew they were ashamed, and they knew there was nothing to do except to hide and to try their best to sow clothes for themselves out of the leaves. And this is where we find ourselves. This is where every person in the world finds themselves. We're in the same situation that our first parents were in because something happened that day that twisted us, that turned us, that completely ruined us in such a way that it doesn't work properly anymore. But in this next verse, verse 15, God in his curse of the the serpent, cursing Satan, said something breathtaking. And that was a promise that there is a gospel, that this Bible that we read is a gospel, that it's it's a news that is unlike all other newses. It's something that will resound in the heart of someone who knows that they're guilty. If you don't think you're guilty, there is no gospel for you. But if you recognize that you're not right before a holy God who will judge you by his own standards, then the gospel is the sweetest music you'll ever hear. It's all you'll ever want to hear. You'll only want to hear it. And when you hear the gospel, it's impossible then to point your fingers at others and say that they're 
that they're better than you or worse than you or that they've done wrong against you or that they somehow are all hypocrites. I don't know what people think. Because suddenly it's about me and it's about God and God meeting my need in the Lord Jesus. That he was born as a man and this celebration for centuries in all the different countries is simply the acknowledgement that Jesus, God himself, came to us so that we could be rescued from our sins. Our judgment, our wrath of God that was about to be poured upon every person. And so this verse is the first verse in the Bible <coughs> that teaches men to expect a redeemer. It's, it's pretty amazing that, that he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. That God is going to do something. It's not, it's not God saying, okay, get it straight, clean up your act, do better. Because to look at someone that's broken and say to do better is really just ridiculous. To, to I remember a car that always leaned to the right all the time. Every time that I, if I only held the, the steering wheel with one hand, it would always go to the right. And so I learned to drive holding down on my left so that it would keep it in the road. And then we got a new car. And I always went the other way because I was, I'd, I'd learned to drive modifying or, uh, or overtaking what that car normally did. Well, God doesn't just say, get a haircut and straighten up your life. There isn't, it's, not a, it's not a morality. And a lot of people think that uh, a religion is simply morality. It's the idea of ethics, do right. If there's right, do right. The standard of God is righteousness. The standard of God is what God is. It's his person. And his creatures are expected to live like him. But we're ruined. So when God tells us to do something, the only thing it does is then tell us that we're broken. It's, It's a way of showing us that we're broken. The law, which comes way hundreds and hundreds of years after this, really is to alert you when you read it, that I can't be this way. I'm not this way. I've never been this way. I'm never keeping God's law. I'm never doing right. And even the times when other people think I'm doing right, I know that I'm not. I know that my standard is ridiculous when compared to God. And most of the time, I just have to spend my life to make it even look presentable to other people. So God didn't just say, do right change your steps, but instead he promises that he's going to do something. So the first thing that I see that he promises is that I am going to put enmity between thee and the woman. So he's speaking through the state, uh, through the serpent, to the, to the father of this wickedness, to the, to the one who is the deceiver, who is the trickster, who is the enemy, <clears throat> the enemy of man. And there is a backstory to this in the depths of eternity that something happened before the fall that caused the fall. Something happened that would uh, uh, allow a deceiver to even come into the garden, let alone the fact that Eve was beguiled and Adam was, was asleep or something, whatever happened, whatever caused the ruin, which obviously is the biggest deal of all deals, whatever caused it to happen, God is talking directly to Satan, and he's saying, you are, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to, first of all, do something in the hearts of people. 
I'm going to work in people's hearts in such a way that they recognize that you're their enemy. The first thing I'm going to do, because Eve didn't know that she was talking to an enemy. He sounded logical. He sounded, he sounded beautiful, the most beautiful thing and, and logical and sensible. And she, it all made sense to her. It clicked completely with her. And she was totally eager to jump onto whatever he said, though what he was really doing was perverting God's words and making Adam and Eve take Satan as their God instead of God, that they actually had to turn their back on God in order to believe the lie. And I think that is where all people are. That's where I am. That's where you are. If I do not listen to the voice of truth, if I do not seek out God's wisdom given to me, I will think like I always thought. I will always drive to the, to the right. I will always bend in a warped way. I'm twisted. So God has to do something in me. He can't just require me to do right because all that is, is is to my, it's ridiculous because I would simply be a hypocrite. But instead, he's going to do something. So the first thing he says is I'm going to do something in their nature. I'm going to change something. So there are now two lines of men because he said I'm going to do it in two ways. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman because you are the one that beguiled the woman. Now the woman's going to see you as the enemy. So So Eve had a mind now that was different from her mind as an innocent person. She now knew that you listen to God and that there is an enemy that will pull you away and that that enemy needs to be hated and and avoided at all costs. Something happened in Eve's heart. Some worshipful thing happened in Eve's heart. Then the next thing, oh, and and the idea that I will put enmity between you and the woman Interesting that God is still in charge of Satan. And part of God's judgment on Satan was that that Satan would hate us. Now, that's amazing. That that's part of God's judgment on Satan is that Satan would have enmity against anyone that thinks like Eve now was thinking. And he said, and your seed and his seed. I will, or her seed. I will, I will, there, there is going to be two lines of people now. Now, there was, at this time, there was no people. There were two people in all. There was no children of, at all. And for whatever reason, he said, you are, the woman is going to have a line, and you are going to have a line. There are going to be people that think like you, and there are going to be people that think like this renewed woman that I have recreated. And I want, I want you to know that, that from this moment on, there's going to be a holy war that exists between these two lines. Now, if you pull all the way to the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, we're seeing a meta-narrative. We're seeing behind the walls of the entire universe. And this is speaking of, of Satan in verse 17, chapter 12. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there was a war that began in the garden that continues even now and into our future history that will, that will always be a, a line. There has to be a line that you decide this day whom you will serve. There has to be a God in your life, and all will choose a God. They will. There will be a God that they serve. There will be a God that they listen to. There will be a God that they worship. It is a matter of who that God is and that these two lines will always be at war between each other. 
Now, Eve was now new. Eve had a, had a new mind. She had a new heart, and she knew that her only hope was this promise. That is something that all people that are the seed of the woman, all people like her, all people trusting in the Lord Jesus right now, because you have to see that we're on this side of Christmas. This side of Christmas was the answer to this promise. And so as we look and what does it mean to be right with God, you are reconciled or brought back to God because every person in the world is alienated from the Lord. Everybody. All of us are. And there are two lines. You will either stay alienated from God and be more and more like yourself, stronger and stronger. And just like Satan, your judgment will be that you will hate more. You will be stronger in your, in your character that you've decided for yourself. Your integrity will be stronger and stronger and stronger in a, in a wicked way. And that is you, God's judgment on you. Or a person who is reconciled to God through Jesus, through the Savior, through, through the baby born, because he said, between your seed and thy seed, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. So we're now talking not just of all the descendants of Eve that would be reconciled to God through the promise. Do you see? Everybody before Christ, there were many godly people before Christ that was reconciled to God, right with God. Not because they were clean in themselves, but because they were trusting in the promise that God made. God promised, I am going to send one of your seed that will crush the serpent's head. And when he crushes his head, it's going to be a done deal. I'm going to do that. I will seal it. The zeal of the Lord shall accomplish it, we read today. The zeal of the Lord. I will make sure it happens, God said. So when a person person is trusting in what later will be called the Messiah, this conquering seed, this one who will crush the seed of the... The, the serpent's head. This is a, this is a, this requires faith. It doesn't require that you clean up your life. It requires that you are depending upon the only hope that you have is that God doesn't lie and that God said he will take care of it. And a person that's trusting in this shows themselves to be of the line of the woman a person who has no concern whatsoever and goes about their life as they please, the way they want, driving their own life as they please, is showing themselves to be of the line of, of, of the serpent, that there are two lines. Now, Eve, in the very next chapter, has a son, and she is sure, positive sure, that this son is the answer to that promise because from your seed, now she had never had a child before, that no one had ever had a child before. This, these were the first parents. And the idea that she would even have a child is a, ma- is a miracle even now. But what a miracle would have been if it had never happened before. And that he had just said, I'm going to do something about it. I am going, you are going to have a child, and that child is going to crush the serpent's head. She was sure. This is the very first uh, verse of chapter 4 of Genesis. And Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And Eve said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, when I went and did the language stuff at the beginning, when I do a verse, I try to 
look at every single word, all of it, how it works, the grammar, all of that, just to make sure that I, I know what I'm looking at. And when you, when you read this word for word in the Hebrew, what it's actually saying literally just says, I've gotten a man, the Lord. That's what it says. In fact, it says, I have gotten a man, and then there's a little mark that says direct object, which is the same as man. I've gotten a man, which is the direct object that sentence. And then there's a marker for the direct object that says the Lord. And there are three English translations of the Bible that actually says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Now, I have no idea. As I looked at that, my, my immediate question was, did Eve know that the Messiah was going to be divine, that he was going to be God? Like, did, did Eve know that? Did God tell her that? In, was her new nature that he gave her, this enmity that she had against the, the, the devil, did she know that God would have to repair it and the way God would repair it would be to send his son? I, that mystifies me. I, I would say it doesn't, it's not necessarily, nece, it's not necessary that she would know. By the time we get to the New Testament, even the people who should know then didn't know that it was God. It took the apostle later telling us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It was, it was a mystery, a mystery that God revealed that was hidden, this idea that God himself would rescue us. It's much easier to give a law and require us to be good. It is different when God says, no, I'll take it. I'll carry it. I'll do something about this. I'm the only one that can do it. God had to step in and come to us. That's what Emmanuel means. He came to us that we might not be ruined. So Cain was not this answer. In fact, Cain was of the serpent. Now, that was a mystery, too, because here uh, they were delighted with this boy. And raised him beautifully, and he turns out to be a wicked man. This is this is First John three. So this is John the Apostle writing a letter at the end of the Bible, and he's speaking about Cain, and he says in verse twelve, "Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother. Wherefore he slew him, because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous." So he said, Cain proved that he was not of the line of the woman that would that would be trusting god because look at look at his hands look what he did look at his heart look at what he did and you can see where he is so when i stop and i consider that i then stop and say oh well then why do i do the things i do i want to follow god i don't want to do wickedness i don't want to do the things that god disapproves of why because i'm trying to buy something I mean, in my mind, that's immediately where I go. Am I trying to fake somebody else? Am I trying to act some way so that I'm not, I'm not, I'm convincing God that that something's true or I'm convincing other people that something's true? And I would say, not really. I'm a fallen man trusting my Savior. That's a different thing. And as I trust my Savior, I want to please Him. So it's a motivation issue. There are frauds in this world. There are people who say, hey, I'm Brother Brian. But in the same breath, I'll stab you in the back or do worse. They're, they're wicked people. But he proved who he was. This is the one that his mother thought was the Messiah. And he proved that he was of the line of the, of the serpent. So, so then you had a second son who was murdered by the first son. And so he had no children, so he couldn't be the Messiah. 
And then later in, in verse 24, this is still in chapter 4, they, they will have another son. Now, if you continue on into uh, chapter 4, chapter 5 of, of uh, Genesis, it starts talking about these two lines. In fact, that's the plot of the book. You start seeing Cain's descendants and what Cain's descendants look like and act like, prove themselves to be. And then you start seeing the line of the woman that will prove themselves to be looking for the Messiah. And you can see it as clear as a bell. So when you get into, like, verse 24, you have five generations past past Cain. And remember, Cain kind of came to God and said, everybody's trying to kill me, you know. And, and God puts a curse and said, anybody that, that kills Cain, I will put vengeance on seven times. Well, his great-great-great-great-great-grandson was named Lamech. And he was such a strutty, filthy-mouthed man that he said, Oh, yeah? Well, if Cain would be uh, avenged seven times, Lamech's going to be avenged 77 times. And it wasn't God that avenged him. He's going to avenge himself. Do you see... Do you see what the line looks like? To have a godly father doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a godly person. But to have an ungodly father is almost sure to have an ungodly son. Because it just goes, because you're born by nature this way. Then you're trained this way. Your education is very good. By the time you're 18, you're you're done. You're the way you already are. And one generation only intensifies to the next. And one generation gets worse than the next. That's why a hundred years ago, people would have thought, oh, back in my grandparents' day, they would have never tolerated what we're tolerating. And then we look now, and those people would have rolled over in their graves if they even thought that the culture is the way it is now. And what will happen in a hundred years? People will blush at the... People would blush now at the thought of what our children will be exposed to and our great-grandchildren will be exposed to as normal, completely normal. And we would be, are you serious? Did it go that far that fast? Well, yeah, that, that's what happens. Because we're fallen. Something happened to man on that day, that horrible day that God made a promise to rescue us. So when we get into the, to past that, verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and bare a son and called his name Seth. And she said, he hath appointed me another state instead of Abel, whom King, uh, Cain slew. And Seth to him was born a son, and his name was Enoch. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now that's interesting. Seth is now of the line of the woman, is trusting God's promise that made to his parents that he would do something. And Seth's heart is towards him. And Seth has a son, and he teaches that son to fear the Lord and at that time, Enoch is such a strong man that the people around him start calling on the name of the Lord. Do you see there's two lines in this world going at the same time? And I will not say that this line is good and this line is bad. Because I promise you that I've trusted the Lord Jesus and for that reason I am of the line of the woman. But I'm just as fallen on the inside as I ever was if God does not help me. If, God, if I do not actively worship God through my behavior, through my heart, through my choices, through my what I determine to do, I will ruin myself. And everyone will too. Because we have a Savior, but we are not yet in glory. And so I must trust him. So there is a faith issue, something, something that I do that I must 
Take God at his word, and that's what faith is. So here is a group of people, one generation after another, that is trusting God for that promise. Trusting God for that promise. Now, Enoch had a grandson, and his name was Lamech. And Lamech had a son named Noah, and he named him Noah, which means rest. And this is what the Bible says about why he named him Noah. This is Genesis 5:28. And Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us in concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now here is the fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth generation from Seth. And they are still trusting that God has cursed the ground for our sake. For that reason, God's going to do something. Maybe Noah will be the, the person. Maybe it'll be Noah that'll be the Messiah. I'm going to name him rest because maybe God will give us rest from our hard toil. Do you see? It's faith. All it is. It's trust in God because God said something. It's not trying to be something. It's not trying to show yourself to be some kind of a super guy. You're simply depending upon God. That's all that faith is. You're depending upon what God said. Now, interesting, the other people in this world were so bad that God said, God determined that everybody in their heart does wicked all the time continuously. That, that nobody in this world is doing anything but wickedness. It just continued to get worse and worse. It's like a Petri dish growing with fuzz. It starts off small and by the, you turn overnight and the whole thing's crowded because that's what evil does in the heart of a person. It overtakes us. It overtakes our culture. It overtakes our society. It overtakes our country. It overtakes everything that we're built on because we're, something's wrong on the inside. It's not an external thing. It's a, it's an issue having to do with existence. We're existently, existentially warped. And so all of us will always tend towards this. And so these people, Noah, Noah was named rest because maybe he's the Messiah. There's still people trusting. Now it's strange because you have the entire earth filled with people so wicked that God said they're only doing wicked all the time. And then you have a couple people who are trusting God in the middle of this. A couple people. So the line of the woman seems puny compared to the line of the serpent. And then God kills everybody in the world. And you would think, oh, it's done. That's how God does it. He simply kills all the bad people. That's how, he, that's how he, he crushes the head of the serpent. I'll just kill them all. Well, you have Noah and his three kids and their families, and that's all that lives. That's it. And everybody else dies, and you would think that the end of the story, it's a happy ending. Except that the people on the boat are people, just like us. And you even have, so you're having of Noah's sons, who was godly and was a preacher of righteousness. You end up having those sons now are the new father of the line of the serpent. Because he says, blessed be Seth, blessed be the God of, uh, of Shem, and Canaan will be his servant. So you have, you have Canaan's dad, Ham, and you have Canaan, and they will become the new line of the serpent. And within a hundred years, five hundred years, whatever amount of years, they're already building Babel, already basically thumbing their nose to God. 
So it's, it's something built into us. It doesn't matter. You could destroy the whole world, and as long as you leave me, I could be the line of the serpent. Now, I promise you, when Christ redeemed us, there is no more father Cain. There is no more father Ham. It's done. He completely vanquished the devil. In fact, that's what John said that his purpose was. His purpose was to, to, to destroy the works of the devil. That that was why Christ came. To completely crush his head. Melissa showed me a picture yesterday, which I thought was amazing. It had a picture of the bottom of the cross. And the feet were nailed with a spike. And on the back of the heel was a snake's head. And the spike of the snake, the spike of the nail went through the snake's head into the cross. That as he was making Christ suffer, he was killed. The very act of the suffering of Christ, which was that you will strike his heel, was the very act that was the death knell of the, of the Satan. There is no more power in Satan. There is no more power in Satan. Satan was vanquished. So what it is, is that we are still alerted. We're still exactly the way we were, still as wicked as we ever were, and there are countless millions who are still alienated from God. We are not at peace with God. If they were to die right now, right now, they would forever burn with no floor. They would fall forever in a bottomless pit of dark pain. And that's the way it is. That is the way it is. And there are a few that are still trusting in what God's promised. But we have it better because 2,000 years ago in a stable somewhere in the Middle East, a baby was born who was God. And God did something to destroy. So the name of this, the name of this sermon is the conqueror of our conqueror. The conqueror of our conqueror. So when I see that you will, you will strike his head. You, he will bruise your, your heel and he will crush your head. That there is a, in an act of the suffering of the Son of God, it was enough to destroy our enemy completely, completely. And he made a spectacle out of him for all time. Then there will be an ultimate end. As, as soon as God is finished with him to start with, it, when he has done his purpose in this world, then he will be gone. He'll be gone forever. There won't be a part left. So we have a snake crusher. Now, let me just now start fast forwarding. You're going to have this line that continuously goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. You're going to have um, you're going to have Abraham, who God talked about his seed ten times. God is speaking about Abraham's seed ten different accounts in the book of Genesis. And in Galatians, Paul then refers to, to Abraham and he said, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel to Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So in God's work with Abraham, as he was talking about your seed, in your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, Paul then comes later and he says in the rest of that chapter, he said, be careful. I'm not talking about seeds. I'm not talking about all the descendants of Abraham. I'm not talking about the Jews will be the blessing of the world. No, it's one person. It was seed, singular, not 
plural. This is, uh, this is uh, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as many, but of one, and to that to thy seed, which is Christ. There is one promise conqueror of, of Eve. Not all these people. There were, there were godly people. That were, lying, that were trusting in the Messiah, trusting in God's promise, even before they knew what a Messiah was, before they knew anything. They were simply trusting that God will take care of this, that God promised, and that that is simply called faith. There were people like that. But the conqueror, the one who will crush the head, was one person. And now when I went back, when I went back with those eyes, and I went back to these promises, and I read them all again, I wrote this down. This is Genesis chapter 22. Now, he's promising to Abraham's seed blessing. Now, look what I saw. In that, uh, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Now, when I look at first and it says, and I will multiply thy seed... So there it's talking collectively. It's thy, all thy descendants, all, your, all of the people who will descend from you is your seeds. And I will multiply them as the stars of heaven. So right now I'm thinking of many, many, many people. And then it says, and thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. And then when I thought, oh my goodness, this one seed, this conquering son, this one conquering son of the, of the, of the woman... He's the only one that ever conquered, that possessed the gates of his enemies. I never possessed the gates of my enemies. My enemy, my enemy gave me a wedgie. I, I never, ever possessed any gates of enemies. But Jesus Christ broke in to the strong man's house. And he completely vanquished him. And he took all of his stuff. And I was part of that stuff. Thank God. Thank the Lord. Thank God. Gabriel then comes to a virgin in a backwater nowhere town among the poor, and he said, your son will be great and be called the son of the highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So we're going to see one conquering son. There's one. The prophets all pointed to him, the son of David. You see, Jacob said, oh, it's going to be in Judah's house. And then later on, God said to David, it'll be in your house, and I will make forever a, a king that will reign forever of your line. So the people who are paying attention, the people who are looking for this promise from Genesis 3.15 are knowing where to look. The Bible is unwrapping, 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 unwrapping as you see it. And then this, the angel comes and said, your son will be great, and he will be given the throne of his father's David. So I saw that this was the first verse that taught us to, to expect a redeemer. The second thing I wrote down is this verse tells us something, how this redemption will occur. So if you look, he curses the serpent directly. You are cursed, God says. Then he looks to the man, and he doesn't curse the man. He curses the land. He said, cursed be the ground for your sake. Because of what you did, the ground will be cursed, and it will grow thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the dust, because dust you are and dust you will return. So the man now is in many ways put down 
But he wasn't cursed. The serpent was cursed. The man was not cursed. The ground was cursed. The woman is not even cursed at all. There is no mention of a curse to the woman. Instead, he says, I will make your delivery painful. But when you think about it, back in chapter 2, it said, the day that you shall eat of it, you will surely die. On that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, if he would have killed those two people that day, if the human race would have ended that day, it would have been total righteousness. There would have been nothing wrong with it. God would have been just as perfect and completely God and not in any way mean at all. He would have done what was right. But instead, they did not die on that day. And, and later, Adam calls his wife Eve because she is the mother of living. That means every living thing that, de- that is derived from her got her, his life from her. That she was the one that was given life. Now, that life was painful. That life was painful. But that was all grace. God didn't destroy them. God allowed her to have children that would eventually, ultimately, bring about the Messiah who would fix it. In God's mercy to her, he allowed her to live. And he allowed her to live long enough to have children. And then he would take care of it past their lifetimes. And most of the time, you have to realize our faith is multi-lifetime. If you truly have faith in God, you're not having faith for today, for your daily bread. You are having faith for your whole life, for the life of your children, for the life of your grandchildren. I don't know how far into the future you have prayed in the past. My guess is that the older you are, the more longer you've gone. That's my guess. You, you probably are smiling to yourself as you think, wow, how far have I gone? My guess is that the older you are, the farther you've gone. Because faith is way bigger than you because it's in something that's not bound in time. And it's not bound in impotence like I am. So, so this is amazing. It's how redemption would occur. It's not just that redemption would occur. And it occurs in God's forbearance. Because Enoch had a son, and his name was Methuselah. And Methuselah lived 969 years, the oldest man that's ever lived. And Methuselah means, when he is gone, it shall be sent. Tell me, name your kid something. That meant the day that Methuselah went to be with the Lord, it started raining. The day, the day he died. He died in the morning, and before lunch, it was raining. God held back his judgment, held back his judgment, held back his judgment. He held back his judgment so that he could fix this problem that was so big that it's bigger than anybody recognizes. And that it's expensive. I wrote down expensive. That the redemption of the Lord to us, for us, was expensive. That he bruised his heel. Yes, the head was of the snake was crushed. But Jesus suffered like no one has ever suffered. Jesus came low like no one has ever come low. And and God that day killed animals and clothed them with the bloody skins of those animals. That's, That's what it is. It's an expense. Redemption is expensive. When God is fixing something, he doesn't fix it with a blink of his eye and a, and a snap of his fingers. He does something about it in a, in a way that where he is still righteous 
and he's also merciful. And it took the death of his son to do it. There is no other way. If any other way we could have been saved, if you could have been saved by keeping a list, then you could have, all of us would have simply been responsible for our own salvation. But I promise you, God is responsible for our salvation. And that's why we honor him. That's why we make much of his son, because our, our savior is his son. And for all of our, every breath, and when, our, when we are on our deathbed, and we've got the croak of death in our throat, the, the seed of the woman will say, Jesus, 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 that's all I want. Take it all, take it all, I want Christ. Give me Jesus. The last thing I wrote is this verse teaches us that Satan's doom was sure from the beginning. And that as we live our life, we live our life not with a sense of that it, we're failing or that we could fail, but that it's victory. We are on the winning team, and even if I'm on the, on the bench every day of my life, I am, on, I am watching the final four, and my team is on the court, and God will win this, and he, he will win it. But you've got two lines going on. This is from Matthew 16. Jesus says, I say to you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you see? There's gates of hell attempting to prevail. That means there's two lines in holy war completely trying to annihilate each other. But God will win. It's already done. He won. When Jesus breathed his last, he said, it is finished. It's finished. It's not, it's not the cliffhanger. It's done, completely done. Now we're simply just cleaning it up. We're cleaning it up because it was finished on the cross. We're simply saved in our faith in what happened as a promise of what was made countless hundreds and thousands of years ago. That's what it is. Christian works out of salvation knowing that Christ is one. This is the end of Galatians chapter 3, which is a beautiful chapter, my goodness. This is talking about us. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are one of the stars that Abraham looked up and said, if you can count the stars, they will be like your descendants. If you are Christ, then you are a descendant of Abraham. Then Father Abraham is your father. Because Abraham had faith, you have faith like Abraham, and it's showing you that God is truly your father. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees, he said, You're, you are your, your father's children, and your father is the devil. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That there is a something to look forward to because it's already done. We will have our inheritance. And that inheritance is everything that Christ has in an inheritance, which is everything. And here's our last verse. This is a benediction in chapter 16 of Romans. This is the end of, chapter, of the Romans. If you remember, the Romans is a huge treatise on how to be saved. It is what salvation is and what God has done in salvation. And as Paul ended this, as Paul ended this masterpiece of what it means for a person to be right with God, to be at peace with God, he refers back to Genesis 3.15 and he said, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan 
under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do you see somehow we're involved in this? Somehow God is going to have victory in Christ and treat us with something worthy of reward. That there is going to be a reward for us as we in our faith in God end up doing way more than we're able, capable of doing. Okay, so you aim your your BB gun at the bit at the bear, and it's God pulling back the bow behind you. That's what's happening, and then you're rewarded for crushing Satan under your feet. How in the world that that is even possible? But that is to be looked forward to, and that is Christmas. That's Christmas. May God bless us as we listen and take in what he said.